0: would please turn into your Bibles, to the book of Romans, chapter 12, if you need a Bible, we got some coming from the back, raise your hand, Romans chapter 12, looking at just two verses today, verse 1 and verse 2, if you're new with us, let uh, know that we've been in a series of Romans been going through one verse and one chapter at a time. This morning we get to the twelfth chapter. And at this chapter, these verses are a turning point to the cap for a whole lot of section. We're just looking at two verses today, verse 1 and verse 2. And I do encourage you to follow along in a Bible It will help. It will help you listen. It will help me preach. It will help you respond with your amens and your hallelujahs and your facts. We'll stand together as we read these two verses. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word, help me to, to speak your truth and your ideas, not merely my own, that you would open our hearts to it, shape us, and fashion us according to the likeness of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 I want to simply call my sermon this morning, give your whole self to God. Give your whole self to God. I wonder if somebody can resonate with my story. A couple weeks ago, I invited some folks over to my house and went home and I walked into my living room and I thought, oh no, (laughs) (laughs) you know the boys had torn the place up. Toys, Legos everywhere, clothes everywhere, dishes everywhere. It wasn't just the boys; it was like 90 (laughs) percent. And I'm like, girls, clean up. And I, I, they're like, why? I'm like, we got people coming over. And They say when? And I say, in five minutes. <laughs> so we're all like running around, like throwing Legos into the into the closet. And I'm taking piles of clothes and piles of paper up the stairs, just putting them on top of the stairs, <laughs> and like all laundry. And we're taking dishes and throwing them into the sink. You know how it is. And then, uh, five minutes later, our company walks in, and we're all sitting on the couch. (laughs) (laughs) We're just hoping they don't walk up the stairs. We're hoping that the the laundry pile doesn't just roll down the stairs. (laughs) (laughs) Hoping they don't go into the kitchen. Why do we work so hard to please somebody coming into our home? while we're otherwise content to live in the mess. Now, in the same way we do this with our spiritual lives, we compartmentalize things. And we work really hard to clean up the front room of our life.
1: You
0: know, we might call that room religion. We work hard to clean up this one room to invite people in and it looks good, and we feel good about it, we kind of put on, and we're just hoping they don't look up the stairs. We're hoping they don't go into the kitchen. We, we're hoping they don't start asking deeper questions. We're hoping they don't ask us to, to study the Bible with them or come to a small group or uh, to meet up or to talk about spiritual things because we know that the rest of our life is a mess. And the same applies. Why do we look so hard to look good in one little area of our life? And we are content with the misery of a wretched mess of a life elsewhere. I just want to say this, it doesn't make sense. Sin doesn't make sense. What we're going to look at today is what does make sense. And and as I talk about giving our whole selves over to God, you know, not compartmentalizing our lives, not just giving God one room of our house, but giving Him the whole house, which includes our fears and our ambitions and our desires. What What I hope that we walk away with today is just this realization that it makes sense. It only makes sense to give our whole lives to God. Now, many folks in their compartmentalization, they, they think of, you know, Sunday mornings as their time that they give to God. And the rest of the week, the rest of the day is their time. What's even worse is when they think of the singing portion of the service as the only thing that we would call worship. You know, so this is why uh, Christians might, you know, you know, you know we got like ten thousand minutes in a week. Like thirty minutes would be like a very small percentage of our life. like I, think, I did the math; it's actually zero point two nine percent of your life, and, and it doesn't make sense. And this is why, uh, 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 this is why I've heard Christians say things like, "Yeah, you know, I know that church. They don't." live Godly lives and the gospel is not really present in the preaching but they got good worship I think Jesus would say that doesn't make any sense like we just associate good worship with the skill of a band you know or how well people sing and we fail to live the rest of our lives holy unto God It doesn't make sense. Now, in the Bible, there's there's a couple different words for worship. One of the words for worship does mean something like kissing the hand, or it would be understood to be like a particular kind of event or a time that we enter into. Think of gathered worship. You know, not everything we do is worship per se. We enter into worship. We. Eric called us into worship this morning, an intentional time of looking to God and giving Him devotion. But there's another word for worship that's translated worship often in the Bible, which has more of the idea of religious service or devotion to God, which involves the whole of our lives. And that's the word that's used here in Romans chapter 12, look at verse 1. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, I believe that God here wants us to see in this passage that we would be crazy to receive the gospel and remain unchanged. As I view God's mercy, may I give my whole self. To God. The point that Paul, I believe, is making in these two verses is simply this Do not fit the mold of the world, but be changed completely. Now, I think we want to be changed. Most Christians I know want to be changed. The problem is really the same. Our problems are no different than the problem the first century uh, initial readers of this text would have had. And that is just simply this, that it's so easy to go along with the flow of society. It's so easy to pick up the ideas of the world around us and to allow our minds to be shaped by the ideas of the world and then to revert to our old habits and to be conformed to this mold and this pattern to be infused with the values of society which conflict with God's ways. Now if professing believers don't solve this problem, we will continue to live these compartmentalized lives where we have this one little room that we present to everybody that looks good, but really we're a miserable mess elsewhere. Romans 12, 1 and 2 brings us, church, to a solution. God doesn't just speak to one room. He's calling us to transform every bit of our lives from our ambitions to our fears to our desires and so on. But that leads us to a question. The question is this. How do I change? How do I then change? Let's look at it. Verse 1, he says, I appeal by the mercy of God. How do we change? Number 1, our motivation for change. And that is the mercy of God. Get your motivation for change right before you even start thinking about (laughs) change. Our motivation for change is the mercy of God. So let's just quickly, let's go over the book of Romans, shall we? Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11, what we've seen kind of in a big nutshell is the gospel message. In Romans chapter 1, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he then proceeds to tell us the gospel. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says that there is, uh, that God is not a God of Partiality, but all people he judges equally, and all people are equally in need of grace in chapter 3. Though we sin, we are justified as a gift through faith in chapter 4. Even Abraham was justified by faith and not by works in chapter 5. While we are weak, when we were weak, Christ died. For the ungodly in chapter six through christ we die to sin once and for all and so therefore we now live with christ in chapter seven we are then released from this law-based kind of righteousness that we are bound to christ and in chapter 8 we saw a church and i need an amen here there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus let me say that again because i only had four amens in chapter eight we saw that there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus and in chapter nine we see that this is only God's decision to lavish his grace upon us. In chapter 10, we see that those who carry this gospel into the world are said to have, have beautiful feet. And in chapter 11, there is no room for pride. Because each one of us are here by the grace yeah. of God. And now, what Paul's doing is, he's turning in chapter 12 and he's saying, Okay, so now, how shall we live? So, chapter 12 is beginning a new section for us. Paul often writes this way. If you think of the book of Ephesians, very clear outline in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3 is the gospel, Ephesians 4 through 6 is application. How shall we now live in light of what God has done for us? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have. Received. You see, what Paul's doing, and he often does this in his letters, he's saying, This is what the Lord has done. Therefore, this is how we must live. The gospel of Jesus Christ, when we understand that Christ came to die for the ungodly, we understand that Christ, the God man, lived the life that we should have lived died the death that we should have died, took the wrath of God for us, rose from the dead, defeating death and defeating sin, called us to turn from our sins and to trust in Him, and we by grace through faith, receive salvation. When we understand the gospel, church, it only makes sense yeah. to give our whole lives yeah. to God. So chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Look at at how he's writing here. Paul is appealing, yes, but this this is not merely an appeal from Paul, the man. He's appealing, he says, by the mercies of God. Meaning, it's not just me, this is the mercy of God appealing to you. God's mercy is speaking to you right now. God's mercies are crying out to you. God's mercy in the blood of Jesus Christ is calling you to change. Verse 1 continues, I appeal by the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What is our motivation to change? Two things I want to point out here. Number one, Our motivation to change is God's grace. His manifold mercies. Because of the goodness of God that we have seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to give our whole selves to God. You see, the motivation for change matters. When you think of like dead religion, dead religion is founded on this idea that I change in order to get myself right with God. And so the rebel, in us, responds to that and says, well, I'm not right with God, therefore, I ain't going to change. But the Gospel comes along and says, God has made you right. He's already declared you to be right. Not because of your work, but because of the work of His Son. And so, therefore, I'm going to give my whole self to God. And so... If we're called here then to, to give our bodies, he says. Present your bodies. He I mean, doesn't just mean your physical The body here is going to be a, a picture for the whole of who we are. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. Now, this, where he says sacrifice, this is not the same sacrifice as Jesus Christ. Christ died once and for all. Christ was the atonement. He, he, he died to take our sin wrath, uh, the, the wrath of God for our sin. He died to pay our sin price. We don't sacrifice our lives in the same way that Jesus sacrificed his life. Paul's using here in this text this sacrificial language. But remember too, he's got got—he's got Jews in mind. And he's, he's saying, you know, sacrifices literally have come to an end with the final sacrifice, but what sacrifices we're pointing to has not come to an end. And we are to still, God still requires a sacrifice, but it's not just a part, it's not just one of our lambs that we bring and and, and slice it's throat and burn it on the altar. No, it's actually much more than that. Now we are called to give our whole lives to God as a sacrifice. That's what he requires. So this is a sacrifice then, not of atonement, but a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Three descriptors are used for this sacrifice in verse 1. He says it's living. It's a living sacrifice. And I don't think it just simply means, you know, as opposed to an animal who died. Because even when an animal was sacrificed, it was alive before it died. I think what he's saying is, he's referring back to chapter 6, verse 11, where he says that we are alive unto God. He's referring to our spiritual state and he's saying we're no longer dead in our sin but we are alive and so the sacrifice we live is a living sacrifice it's a sacrifice of life of spiritual vibrancy no longer in our sin but alive unto god he says the sacrifice is holy which means that our whole lives are to be dedicated to god he says that our sacrifice is acceptable. Again, using sacrificial language here, but this this would be uh, referring to a fragrant offering, meaning our sacrifice is pleasing to God. So we are motivated by God's mercy. Secondly, we are motivated by reason. Now let me show you where I get this from. You see, as he, as he continues in verse 1, he says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your... What are the two words there in your Bible? Curious. I got the ESV. It depends. We're going to have some different translations here. I, So I've got spiritual worship in the ESV. All right? Now, all the, a lot of our... I probably every translation in this room. I, I can't see them all. There's a few that, like, you know, you don't want but most translations are pretty reliable. I ain't saying this is wrong. But I, I want to uh, look into the definition uh, of these words here to get a deeper understanding. The King James translation calls it reasonable service. The ESV, which I use, calls it spiritual worship. What are we seeing here? Well, let's first just hear the command. Let's, let's just uh, sit with this for a second give your whole self to God, and he says, and this is your spiritual worship in the ESV. Spiritual comes from, at least, the Greek word logos. Logos is this idea of word or logic. This word, this particular form, is rare uh, in the Bible. It's only used in two places. Uh, but Typically, throughout Greek language, this word... Is used uh, for the idea to communicate the idea of something that's rational. Now it can mean spiritual. That is a possible interpretation of the word. But it can also mean agreeable or following reason or logical. Now I don't think that what Paul is saying here is that giving your whole self to God is your Spiritual worship, as if there is an unspiritual worship that we can be part of, or as if there's like a physical kind of worship as opposed to a spiritual worship. I think a better translation of this is what the KJV gives us, and that is where it says, "Giving our whole lives to God is a reasonable, a reasonable service. It's a reasonable thing." to do. It's logical. Given the mercies of God, it only makes sense that we live worshipful, service-minded kinds of lives giving our whole self to Him as a sacrifice. It only makes sense. In other words, or to flip it around, it's illogical to receive the mercies of God and then keep any part of us back for our sinful pleasures. So, first, the motivation to change is the mercies of God. Secondly, what is our method of changing? How do we actually change? Given the right motivation, what does change look like? Going on, the method of change is this. It's the renewal of the mind. The renewal of the mind Here's the command in verse two. First, a negative. He says, "Do not be conformed." Everybody say, "Conformed." Do not be conformed to the world. And then he gives us a positive. But be what's the word? Transformed. Transformed. Notice he uses two different words here. And I think some scholars uh, make a little too big of a deal over this. Conformed versus transformed. Some will say that what he's saying is, is that conformed means just simply an external kind of change, whereas transformed is an internal kind of change. So they might say something like, you know, don't be the kind of Christian who, you know, you really genuinely love Jesus in your heart, but you just go along with the flow. And you allow yourself externally to look like the world, and you're conflicted when all, in all reality you actually love Jesus. But instead, be transformed, be who you are, and let the inside come out and be shown physically. The problem with that kind of thinking here is that conformed is not merely external. As if you can be like this genuinely good-hearted Christian on the inside, but going along with the flow of the world on the outside. Our inside and our outsides match. To give you an Old Testament example of this, in 2 Kings chapter 17. Just before Israel fell to Assyria, <coughs> excuse me, the last king of Israel, quote, did evil in the sight of God. And he allowed Israel to, and I quote, follow the practices of the nation. Now that's external, following the practices. What this meant was that they set up sacred stones and asherah poles. They worshipped idols. though The Lord said, you shall not do this. Verse 15, they imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. All of this external sort of change and all of this imitating of the nations around them. but it's not merely external. In verse 16, it says, they forsook all the commandments of the Lord. Meaning their conformity to the nations was an inner forsaking of every single command that God had given them. In verse 15, it says that they had become workers. But to be conformed to the world is to be molded by the world, inside and out. It's to be completely changed by the world. In the same way that we are one day going to be conformed to the image of the Son. He's saying, like, don't be conformed to the ways of the world. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 7, verse 15, he said, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile Meaning conformity is seen in your hearts before it's seen in your hands. Don't be fashioned by society, church, but instead be transformed. Here's my paraphrase of what we got so far. I am pleading with you from God. Because of His mercy in the gospel, give your whole selves to Him and leave no part behind. Everything from your money to your sexuality, to your fears, to your ambitions, to your desires, everything is to be transformed by Christ. Given His mercy, giving your whole self only makes sense. Here's how. Don't let the world fit you into its mold. Don't buy the lie. Don't believe the myth that pursuing simple passions makes sense. It doesn't make sense. It's irrational. Instead, be totally changed. How? Here's how. Fill your mind with good stuff. Fill your mind with truth. Fill your mind with pure ideas. Fill your mind with biblical reality. Amen. That was the Joel Kerr's paraphrase right there. The, right there. the Joel Kerr's paraphrase, you heard it first here. Well, what does this mean? I just finished a month of Whole30. Anybody familiar? This is Whole30 approved. <laughs> Whole thirty is like a thirty-day challenge where you stop eating all sugar, no bread, no grains, no rice. Uh, what else? No, 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 no beans. Uh, like basically no happiness. <laughs> no happiness for the first week until you get used to it. So like literally, like the first week or two, like I make one of the hills. Why aren't you doing like a whole five, whole seven, you whole know, so. And I was like, that's actually the worst thing to do because the first five or seven days are the worst. It's not until you get past the first week that you start to realize, okay, I don't have to have sugar in my life. I can do it. Like, by week two, week three, week four, I got to the point where I actually was starting to crave dates. And I never wanted to be that kind. I always find those kind of people weird like, hey, you know, you want a Snickers bar? No, I brought my dried fizz with me. <laughs> and I became that. My birthday fell on January 20th so this is 20 days into whole third. And even though I was like, you know, starting to pick up on the whole date thing, big thing, uh, by the 20th, When the 20th hit, uh, on my birthday, you know, I'm like, I'm going to stick to it. We had the youth coming over to our our house that night for youth night. And I knew that we were going to get pizza. And Ah! I love pizza. I'm a big Domino's pizza. If anybody's ever had a meeting with me, no. I I like pizza. And my daughter Eden made me, quote unquote, me. An Oreo cake. Which sounds amazing, right? How am I going to get through? Pizza. An Oreo cake. On my birthday. This is what I did. Before the youth came over, before we ordered the pizza, before the cake came out of the oven, I ate about 13 days about five dry Turkish figs, a sweet potato, a piece of chicken, about five more dates. But I just ate as much healthy food as I could eat. Because one thing I learned was this. The best way to eat healthy is to not starve yourself. But it's to be so filled up on the good stuff that you don't crave the junk and I wonder if anybody can testify I wonder if anybody's discovered in your spiritual law that the best way to stay healthy before God is to fill yourself, to fill your mind with the good stuff so that you don't crave the junk of the world look the problem is that so many Christians are trying to live a holy life but they're Themselves. They're trying to, re- to refrain from the things of the world, they're trying to refrain from their old behaviors, but they're not taking anything yeah. in new to fill them up. That's better. You see, the way we change is not just simply through looking at the pizza, looking at the Oreo cake, all, you know, all the junk of the world, and, and just being so Strong yeah, yeah. and being able to walk away from it and say, you know what, I'm not gonna have to. the way we change is to be filled. Yeah. And to say, I just don't have any desire for it. That's this is what he's telling us. Look at the text. We're called here to renew our minds. How do we change? How do we change? It's through filling our minds with what is better. Let me break this down a couple ways. In your free time, feed your mind with good stuff. Like, think about what are you feeding your mind in your free time? In your free time, give your mind. Feed your mind with a taste of heaven. Feed your mind with the Word of God. Feed your mind with good Christian books. Notice I said good. Christian books. Let me say that one more time. Good Christian books that are saturated with scripture. Good sermons. There's there's so many resources out there. And if if you don't know what's good or what's worth your 60 minutes, just ask some, you know, ask the elders in the church or ask some some church members who have been walking with Jesus for a while for some recommendations. But there's just so much that we can access to feed our minds in our free time. Meet and spend time with God's people. Don't don't wait for somebody to ask you to meet up. Be an initiator. Have people over. Go out with people. Hang out with God's people. I have a Thursday morning uh, uh, time with a couple guys that I initiated, but I did it, and I don't just do it for their sake. I do it for my sake, because I need guys looking over my shoulder. I need guys that I can practice confessing sin with, and reading the Bible with, and maybe reading a book together. Assess your mind and heart. Study your mind and heart. And search for inconsistencies. Meaning, do I intellectually believe these things about God? However, I'm living in fear of man. I'm living, uh, to to just get people's attention, I'm living believing that my worth, my value, is in what I do and what, uh, what I can accomplish. You know, assess your mind. Test your mind. I'm feeling downcast. Why? Am I allowing something to affect me? What sort of wrong thinking do I have to correct? And how does the Bible speak to that? Renew our minds. Look, in our modern day society, we devalue the mind. We just believe that we are that we are uh, nothing more than passions that we can't control. That we're nothing more than desires that haunt us. That we're nothing more than casualties of our Surroundings and a lot of Christianity doesn't help. You know, a lot of Christianity out there says, "Watch out for theology. Don't study too hard. You don't want to get too big-headed. Just keep it simple." Look, it's possible. It's possible to be the kind of person who studies a lot and is big-headed and feeds their mind with all this stuff. And they're able to check all the right boxes yet live lives that are hypocritical. But don't think that right thinking can lead to wrong practice. There's an inconsistency there. You see, if you're the kind of person who thinks, oh, you've got all the right theology, and that's the problem, you're just living this theologically heady kind of uh, life with no actual practice, I would say something about your theology is actually wrong. You see what I'm saying? Right thinking leads The right behavior. Maybe you haven't applied it. Maybe you haven't assessed your mind in such a way and asked yourself, Do I really believe it? Paul's point here is this He's saying, We don't change by simply adopting new ways of behavior, we change through new ways of thinking. Do you guys get this? As you think about changing, don't just start with the behaviors. How can I modify this? How can I change this? What can I do differently? But start by the thinking. How am I thinking about it? And renew your mind. Church, are you renewing your mind? Or are, are, are you feeding your mind? The the songs and the ideas and the teachers and the friends which reinforce what is true? Or are you feeding your mind with the ideas of this world? Now, this isn't a once and for all kind of change. We don't just renew our minds, period, and then get on with it. It's a continual process. We're always seeking to renew our minds. If I could use myself as a testimony. I have two degrees in theology. I've been a Christian for about 36 years. I've been a full-time pastor for about 20 years. And what I've learned is this. Is that human beings have a forgetting problem. And that I still today have to renew my mind. I still today am tempted to be conformed to the ways and to the thinking patterns yeah. of the world and I have to actively seek to renew my mind yeah. like a car runs out of gas we gotta refill like a body processes healthy foods and you get hungry again and start craving some other things you've gotta keep filling yourself with healthy food so how do we change Number one, our motivation to change. It's got to be the mercy of God. Number two, the method of changing is the renewal of our minds. Number three, the results of change. What does this lead us to? And that is the approval of God's will. We look at God's will and God's ways and we say, yes, that's good, that's right, that's perfect, that's acceptable. Look at verse 2. He continues, You know, not conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, everybody say testing. 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 You may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Change looks like this. Change looks like desiring God's will and God's ways more than the will and the ways of the world. Testing here means to examine and evaluate our own lives in comparison with God's will and God's ways and to, by doing so, agree with God's will and say that's better than the ways of the world. Now, will here doesn't mean God's secret will. It's not saying that if you do these things that you'll all of a sudden have insight into God's secret will. But it's rather referring to the revealed will of God. What we have in the Word of God, in the Scriptures. And he's saying, you're going to test the will of God. You're going to, to, through the renewal of your mind, you're going to see that God's revealed will is what? It's good. It's good. It's perfect, which means complete. It's whole. It's acceptable to you. If I could break this uh, break this down in a couple ways, if so I could kind of bring this idea down to earth, why do Christians lose the fear of man and end up being able to selflessly just love people, not worrying so much about what they what they think? It's because they've discovered that pleasing God is better than pleasing men. Why do Christians live sober lives? It's because they've discovered that being filled with the Spirit is better than being filled with the wine of the world. Why do Christians seek to live lives that are godly privately and publicly? To choose what's right as opposed to what's wrong? Well, it's because they taste and they've seen that the Lord is good. Amen, church. Amen. Don't you see that God is, God is so good that we are to give our whole lives. Yesterday I was trimming my dog, Teddy, and I got Teddy kinda of in between my legs here as I'm sitting in this chair and I've got scissors in my hand and I've got clippers in the other hand and I'm like Teddy stand up and he stands up and I'm like sit and turn and he just and he just sits there. He just goes along with it. Okay. Obeying every word. Now listen Teddy wasn't always like that. Oh when I brought Teddy into my home initially he was bad. <laughs> he was a mess. He would leave a mess if you know what I mean. Throughout the house, he would chew at our coffee table. He tore up my couch. Rest in peace. I love that couch. I'm still hanging on to it, but I do not do with it. He was bad, but over time, Teddy realized that I'm good to him, and that he can trust me, and that I give him all good things. I give him food in the morning, food at night, water. I pet him. You know. And, I chase him through the house. And he's learned. Listen, here's the thing. The reason he does what I tell him to do is not because it's right the right thing to do. It's because of who I am. It's because of what I've done to him. And some reason be like, you know, liken us humans to dogs. <laughs> Don't take it too personal. <laughs> All I'm saying is this, is as we learn the mercies of God, If we learn how good God has been to us, then we give our whole selves to him. And it only makes sense to obey this God that has loved us. God, listen, God brought us into his home when we were a mess. Not because we were great, but because he was great. You see, he is a friend to the friendless. He is hope to the hopeless. He's joy to the joyless. God gives love to the unlovely, and He gives mercy to the merciless. He changes the rebel. God softens the hardest heart. Why do we love God? It's because He first loved us. Not that we love God, but He loved us. Listen to how Titus chapter 3, verse 3 puts it. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and deceived, serving diverse, lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But then he goes on. But after that, the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Why do we give our whole selves to God? It's because the kindness and the love of God appeared in our life. And we look at Christ and we see that Christ did not hold anything back when he went to that church. Christ didn't hold anything back when he lived a life of perfect obedience. He didn't hold anything back as he drove that cross up the side of Calvary. He didn't hold anything back when he took nails into his hands and into his feet and hung there on the tree. Christ did not hold anything back as he took the full wrath of God for our sin. He did not hold anything back as he got up from the grave wholly defeating death, wholly defeating sin. What gift of praise is Jesus our Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to yeah. Listen, the scripture says his kindness leads us to repentance. Amen. Church, God loves you. God loves you. Renew your mind. Even as you're facing... The the cold waters of death, even in that moment, renew your mind. And trust this God will never fail you. He will never abandon you. He will never leave you. This is Romans 8, 28 and 29 played out in real life. How is it that we go from not saved to glorification? This is the process of lifelong sanctification. As we renew our minds and as we trust in God and continue to give our whole selves in Him, and He brings us across that river into His home forever and ever. Until that day we are glorified, renew your minds. Know that God loves you. So love Him. Give yourself completely to Him. You know, I wonder if anybody... Needs to respond with confession. I wonder if anybody needs to respond with repentance. Change me, oh God. And you will. You will. Why? Because he has moved into your heart, he has taken up residence in your soul. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Father, we thank you. For this tax, we ask that you would help us as we seek to renew our minds, to alter our ways of thinking so that we might love you and give ourselves wholly to you and thank you for Jesus, this whole gift of salvation from Jesus.